I believe in Oregon, government workers have seen an increase in violence of over 80% in the last five years. I mean, it got to the point where now highway workers are protected. If you assault a highway worker with intention, it's now a class C felony. You can assault a nurse, though, and it's not a felony. But we'll get into that later. <laughs> Had to throw that out. Little sarcasm. I'm a Brit, you know. On today's episode of What's Work Got to Do With It, we're going to hear from Lyndon Enos on the topic of workplace violence, what we have learned so far. Her talk was given at our June 7th Spring Symposia, where five speakers discussed best practices and strategies to prevent, identify, and safely mitigate aggressive behavior and violence in the workplace. The goal of the symposia was to discuss job and industry risk factors of workplace aggression and to provide guidance for workplace settings. Linda Enos is an ergonomist and human factor specialist at HumanFit. She is also an occupational health nurse and certified professional ergonomist with over 27 years of experience working in consulting in industrial and healthcare ergonomics. She holds an undergraduate degree in nursing and a graduate degree in human factors from the University of Idaho. She also has a certification as a Lean Six Sigma Greenbelt practitioner through the Institute of Industrial Engineering. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to present this morning and thank you for our, our gracious host, uh, OIOHS. I live in Boring. Everyone know where Boring is? If you're Oregonians, yes. Do you know what August 9th is every day in Oregon? This is the test for the true Oregonians. It's the boring and dull day. It, 2012 state legislator, slow, slow legislative session, declared that uh, August 9th every year is boring and dull day in Oregon. And you can come and party with us. It's a great day. <laughs> dull, we'll partner with Dull in Scotland, 89 people. You can take a coach trip there every year from boring to dull. And I had the privilege of being in Australia last year and the Shire of Bland want to join us as well. So now it's gonna have to be boring, dull and bland day. So I had to start with some levity because we're going to get into a serious topic, right? So let's see how this goes. Um, uh, I've got, I hope what I've chosen today, I'm going to use notes because I have a lot of data to cover. Um, so I don't usually like to use notes, but I think I will for this one. Um, it, it's a broad topic. I could have chosen any way to go with presenting on violence prevention. I hope what I've chosen is going to be of use to you. You have excellent speakers that are coming after me today that will expand on a lot of topics. I'm giving you the kind of 10,000 foot view of what we know right now. I will talk a lot about healthcare. I'm a nurse. I work a lot in healthcare right now. I've worked in many industries, but everything I say about healthcare today, it applies to any industry. Let's start with a definition of workplace violence. When you're starting a program or enhancing a program, or if you're working with clients who are looking at how to address this, you need a clear definition of violence for your employees so they know what to report. This is the OSHA definition. Workplace violence is any act or threat of physical violence, harassment, intimidation, or other threatening disruptive behavior that occurs at the work site. It ranges from threats and verbal abuse to physical assaults and even homicide. It can affect and involve employees, clients, customers, and visitors. Now, one thing that's interesting, how many of you know that there are two federal bills in Congress right now to, for health care and social assistance, a few of you? They're looking at regulating violence prevention in health care in private and public sectors, so the VA government work as well. But their definition of violence is based on the California law, which is very extensive, very programmatic. It is the threat or use of physical force or weapons or guns that result in the high likelihood of injury, psychological trauma or stress, whether there's, whether there's actual injury injury or not. So it's a very broad definition. So it's going to be very interesting to see where we go with this. And I will touch on this legislation later because we've been quite active in Oregon on legislation this session as well. When I work with healthcare employees, we have to talk about, does violence have to be intentional? What do you think? 
Well, the law we have for healthcare right now in Oregon is only applicable to intentional violence. That is really hard to define in healthcare because a lot of our patients don't mean to hurt us because of their clinical conditions. You know, they may be high on drugs, they may have mental health issues. So for us in healthcare, we have to be very careful to make sure that workers know this is non-intentional violence as well. Otherwise, we don't get reporting. So just something to think about when you're defining it for your programs. Um, you're probably familiar with the NIOSH, other organizations have kind of supported this four types of violence. But type one being criminal intent, the perpetrator has no relationship to the place of business. Type two is our customers, our patients, our visitors, where we're providing a service and they are violent or aggressive towards the server or the worker. Type three is your bullying and incivility. So it's, it's co-worker to co-worker violence. And uh, Dave Christie is here. He's going to talk a lot more about bullying later. I'm not an expert on bullying and prevention of bullying. And then type four is domestic violence. And there's a lot of current research related to this right now because it's becoming an increasing problem in the workplace. So you have some kind of relationship, significant other or spouse, that violence um, spills over into the workplace. Overlying all of this is the term active shooter. Um, you're probably all familiar with this, given what happened in Virginia Beach last week. That's the 17th death from intentional homicide in the workplace in the US this year. So active shooter, the Department of Homeland Security defines active shooter as someone actively engaged in killing or attempting to kill people in a confined and populated area. And of course, this can be related to all four types of violence. The perpetrator can be someone you know or not. It can be someone with a, a relationship to your worker. So those types of violence, I think, are important to define and how, how you define them in your policies is important as well. And we'll, we'll touch on that a little later. But in, in the period of 2011 to 2017, we had over 3,000 fatalities due to homicides. This, this didn't include uh, suicide on the job or other causes of death on the job. I told you it's a cheerful subject, isn't it, first time in the morning. However, the rates have actually stayed steady from 2016 to 2017. And I've just given you an average of fatalities due to homicide a year and a range. Homicide is about 9% of all workplace fatalities in the U.S., when it comes to Oregon, what I was able to find is that we've had 55 fatalities due to violence by other persons in this time frame. This may be intentional or non-intentional. So definitions vary. And some of our data is kind of erroneous. And I will mention, talk about that later. We have about eight uh, violent related fatalities a year with a range of four to 12 in Oregon. And about 13% of workplace fatalities are due to violence. And when we talk about non-fatal injuries, I just wanted to pick injuries and illnesses involving days away from work. These are mostly due to hitting, kicking, beating and shoving, resulting in contusions, strains, sprains, tears, bruising and so on, and um, uh, soreness and pain and so on. And you can see from this data that healthcare and social assistance, that's our hospitals, long-term care, home health, EMS, family services, childcare, and so on, have the highest rates of violence. I mean, you'll see in a minute, that's the same in Oregon. Followed by educational services, which is your schools, your campuses, your universities, anywhere where we're providing teaching and education. And there's been a steady increase in violence in healthcare and education services since 2011. When we look at overall data, um, we're seeing violence occurring to the younger generation. But what's interesting is that 70% of assaults are related to females, which is far greater than men, obviously, and probably because we have more females in healthcare and education, maybe. We're not quite sure why. I also think this is 2017 data. I think the impact of the Me Too movement might change this data somewhat, too, and we'll have increased reporting. 
because remember violence includes sexual harassment verbal bullying it, you know it's a very broad range so it just gives you some idea of what we're dealing with in Oregon our accepted disabling claims you know these are um, time loss claims after three days wait period health care is number one for um, assaults whether they're intentional or not uh, I know that Stan is going to talk later about the uh, public sector I believe in Oregon, government workers have seen an increase in violence of over 80% in the last five years. I mean, it got to the point where now highway workers are protected. If you assault a highway worker with intention, it's now a Class C felony. You can assault a nurse, though, and it's not a felony. But we'll get into that later. <laughs> Had to throw that out. Little sarcasm. I'm a Brit, you know. Ex-Brit, I should say. All right. So 3.1% of accepted disabling claims for all industries in 2017 were related to violence. And then this is the breakdown for healthcare. We see more violence in nursing homes um, than private hospitals and then outpatient settings. And no surprise, the perpetrator is the patient. Now, let's talk about healthcare in more detail since 70% of our uh, injuries are occurring there or assaults are occurring there. Healthcare in the U.S. is the largest employer in the private sector right now, and it's growing. One in five are registered nurses and nursing students report being physically assaulted in the workplace. 50% of nurses reported they had been verbally abused in a previous 12-month period. 12% of nurses employed in the emergency departments experienced physical violence, and 50, 59% said they were subjected to verbal abuse in the last week. So that's 12% for physical violence and 59% for verbal abuse in the last week. And ED staff will tell me, if you want me to report violence, I'll spend the whole shift reporting. It's just part of the job, right? When we look at highest rates of violence, type 2 and type 3, bullying included, and the emergency room, behavioral health services, ICU, medical, surgical units. But we see violence in outpatient clinics, especially with our opioid crisis. We've seen that in rural Oregon when consumers are trying to get narcotics and we've stopped prescribing them and the violence trickles into doctors' offices. Some professionals are more at risk, psychiatric aids, CNAs. But interestingly, we see more younger nurses who are experienced physical and verbal abuse and violence. Maybe that's because we don't train them about this in schools of nursing. They get very little on safety and health training as students. And it's the same for doctors and physical therapists and other healthcare professionals. And they're also younger. And maybe life experience and skills is a little different. But in one study, 70% of newly licensed RNs were bullied in the first six months on the job. And we have a saying in nursing, nurses eat their young. Isn't that horrible? Kathy Bartholomew, who's a nurse in Washington, published a book many years ago, and it's called Nurses Eat Their Young, about the issue of bullying and incivility in healthcare. And you should all be concerned about this because it impacts your care directly. And that's why we really need to address this issue, not just the physical violence from patients, but the bullying as well. Our perpetrator for violence is mostly patients on the type two violence. No surprise there. And then I want to talk about active shooter, because when I present to healthcare facilities, the first thing they say is we need an active shooter program. And yes, you do. But what's the chance of an active shooter coming into a hospital in Oregon, into the ED, and then discharging a firearm? It's actually pretty small, but we have to be prepared. It's a society we're living in. Most of the violence with guns, particularly, is in the ED. 50% of active shooter incidents are in the emergency room. The motivation is usually a personal grudge or a prisoner who is there for medical treatment, and they're trying to escape. But what's interesting is 25% of the shootings, that the perpetrator got the gun from the security officer. 
So we have to think, do we want to arm security officers? And I, I work at OHSU and safe patient handling there, and we have an armed security force. They are police, well-trained police. But I think we're the only hospital in Oregon that have armed security officers, right, Laura? <laughs> so if we move on to the lack of data in other healthcare settings, we don't know about outpatient clinics, EMS, home health. We think maybe a 60% prevalence of violence, but we're really not sure. Topping all of this is 90% of violence is underreported in healthcare. So we really don't know what the data is. And I would say that's the same in other industries too, but particularly in healthcare. So in countries like Canada, UK, parts of Europe, Australia and New Zealand, they felt it necessary to do public health campaigns to ask the public not to assault healthcare workers. Do you think we need something like that in the US? Absolutely. Absolutely. We've been talking about this in Oregon. Could we be the first state to produce something like this? If you go to YouTube and put in violence in healthcare, you'll see some very disturbing videos. I didn't want to show you some of the EDs on the Saturday night. I've had the privilege of working in Europe, Australia and New Zealand in the last 18 months. And wherever I go, we're all dealing with an increase in violence in healthcare. Does anyone know what makes us different in the US to other countries in the world and why we have more fatalities? more guns. We have access to guns. And I don't want to get into that debate. I know that's a political hot potato. However, wherever I go in other countries, that's what they ask me. Well, they ask me two things. What about your politics? We're not going there, right? (laughs) I don't know. Don't want to talk about that. But why do you have guns in America? Why is it such easy access? Why do you kill people with guns? And I grew up in a society where we didn't have these weapons. So it's a very interesting, and I've been here a long time in American now, but it's a very interesting perspective for me too. But I do think we need to educate the public not to come into hospital and assault us. So let's talk about the cost of workplace violence to employers and employees. If you're in safety, you know we tend to look at workers' comp dollars to try and justify any changes. That's quite hard with violence. And I found this with the hospitals I work with because the data is not there. Violence is not the leading cause of costs and claims. Does anyone know the leading cause of work comp claims in healthcare? Because patient handling, musculoskeletal disorders, overexertion, right? However, there are some studies to say that stress claims, one stress claim is about 94,000 on average. Stress claims can be very expensive, as SAFE will attest to. If we can measure indirect costs, so at OHSU for our SAFE patient handling program, we've been able to measure the cost to replace a nurse or an aide or a tech who is on light duty, modified duty or lost time. And when we look at indirect costs, those are about twice the workers' comp costs on their own. So, you know, typically when we're looking at, okay, how much is it costing me as an employer? We start there. But with violence, we have to go under the iceberg. You've probably seen this model before. We have to look at operational loss and costs and the impact of psychological stress, post-traumatic stress disorder, burnout and presenteeism. This leads to increased sick leave and staff turnover. For all businesses, that's not good business. You can't run a business when you have high turnover of staff very well. Unfortunately, in healthcare, when we have high turnover, we're short-staffed. We have more medical errors and patient outcomes are not as good. And there's very good data to support that. You reduce quality of care or service to your customers if you're not in healthcare. If you have an environment of bullying that's tolerated, you're not going to deliver the best service to your customer. We have decreased efficiency. We've seen with bullying in nurses that actually affects their cognitive abilities. So they're more likely to commit medical error. It's reassuring for you all, isn't it? It's why you need an advocate if you go into a healthcare environment. So so you can see why this is such a serious topic for us in healthcare and we need to deal with this. One estimate for costs of turnover annually is $4 billion due to turnover of staff in healthcare 
healthcare environments, lost time, productivity, and time spent training new employees. The cost to replace a nurse is about 125% of their annual salary. And then if we look at the other two here, human error and accidents, fatigue, we know is associated with error. It doesn't matter what industry we're working in. It slips, trips and falls. It's associated with acute trauma. You, you're tired, you're short-staffed, you're stressed. You don't notice a wet patch on the floor or the cord on the floor. You slip or trip. And that's a leading cause of injuries for us in healthcare. But here's my concern. We have millennials who come to a job and if it's too tough or unsafe, they just leave. Has anyone seen that or noticed that? I've seen this at OHSU and other hospitals. We're already hugely understaffed in the US. In, in the UK alone, we're short 30,000 registered nurses. Now, they have a different healthcare system that's broken right now, but all over the world, we're short of healthcare providers. And we have an aging population, right? And we're going to need more in 10 and 20 years. I would like to think that they're not understaffed and stressed when I'm the patient in the hospital. God forbid I have to be there. So this is a serious issue for all of us to be concerned about and we need to address. For the organization, the property damage from violence, the extra security needs and the cost of non-compliance regulation, which we'll get into a little bit later. So it's not a good way to run a business. And you have to think about with all these losses, how much does it cost me to in reimbursement if you're in healthcare or in service or production to offset the cost of this so that I can stay in business and be profitable? To our employees, though, obviously death, psychological, physical injury. Think about the impact of violence to their families as well. This has far reaching effects and beyond. I'm sure some of our other speakers will talk about that. And then with bullying, it's actually associated more with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder than physical violence from patients. So nurses see violence from patients, oh, they're a patient, they don't mean it. But if they're on the, on the receiving end of bullying and violence, whether it's physical or verbal from coworkers, that is more stressful and has more dire health consequences. Cheery stuff, right? <laughs> OK, um, hopefully this is useful to give you some background of the scope of the issue here. Now, I didn't want to get into legislation, but we've been a bit active here in Oregon this session. So I, I think I better mention a few things for anyone that's not in healthcare and social assistance. Workplace violence uh, falls under the general duty clause. But for those of us that are in hospitals, ambulatory centers, outpatient centers, or if we have home health and we're owned by a hospital, we've had a workplace violence law for over 10 years. Washington and Oregon are two of the nine states that have specific laws to address violence in healthcare. And the governor this week signed an amendment to our bill. Washington's bill has changed as well, but I just talk about Oregon. For those of you in healthcare, you now have to complete a comprehensive safety and security evaluation using a, a state or nationally recognized toolkit violence prevention toolkit by June 30th, 2021. That report has to go to the director of DCBS by December 2021. And then that director has to report to the legislature about compliance by March 2022. It's also added no retaliation for reporting violence. I'm not sure why we added that to the law, because that's under the general duty clause and rules anyway. And then that safety committees shall review the healthcare employers assault prevention program and logs and data. So it's added a little bit more to the law. The laws we have in Oregon and Washington are very programmatic. We, the 41 states, have uh, have made it a felony if you assault a nurse or a healthcare worker. We've tried five times in Oregon. We had two bills this last session, and again, they failed. And I won't get into why, because that'll, that'll be another political debate. However, highway workers, taxi drivers, and EMS, if you assault them intentionally, it is a Class C felony with five years in, up to five years imprisonment, $125,000 in fine. And if you assault a highway worker with a vehicle, it's a Class B felony, so that's worse. The last bill I want to talk about is Senate Bill 479 for public employees. 
That was passed this week. It's on the governor's desk, I believe, for signing. That says public employers must create a policy and procedure to address workplace harassment. So that is a specific bill around workplace harassment. And then lastly, if you have private security, you have to follow Division 60 rules. And they're very stringent in Oregon. How many of you have private security in in your facilities? Anybody here? A couple of you. Okay. They will cite and fine you if you don't follow these uh, regulations. On the national level, here in healthcare, we have accrediting agencies that look at patient safety and quality in, in our healthcare in the US. The Center for Medicaid and Medicare is one of them, Joint Commission and DMV are others. They're very focused on violence prevention right now. Joint Commission and DMV will look at violence prevention programs when they're on site. And then uh, I mentioned the federal law. It's not dead yet. I don't know what will happen after the summer recess in Congress, but it's very programmatic and it will follow the California law. So take a look at that because it's, it's very detailed. So there's a big push to have federal OSHA standardized prevention programs for private and public healthcare employers right now. And then lastly, for those of you in healthcare, the fire marshal in Oregon, he is enforcing NFPA 3000, which means you have to have a program to address active shooter in hospitals. And he will cite and fine you if you don't. This is what I'm hearing. So thought I'd, there you go. There's the legal stuff, right? <laughs> All right. So let's get into a little bit about why violence occurs and um, how we prevent it. Just at that, I said at that 10,000 foot level. Is this useful so far? Okay. All right. But I want you to think about what as an employer or an organization can I control? And for those of us in healthcare, the clinical risk factors we can't always control. Our patients present in the emergency room high on drugs or alcohol or they have behavioral health crises. We have to then deal with that. So we can't always prevent that, but we can certainly manage it in a better way. This affects all employers, right? We now have legalized marijuana. I'm not saying that that can lead to more incidents of violence. I don't know. There's probably some other experts here that know that. But we, we have to be concerned about substance abuse and mental illness in our workplaces because behavioral health services has been cut in the last 10 years in this country in every state. Alzheimer's disease, cognitive impairment, a lot of our patients are confused. They get aggressive if you're in their space or certain triggers cause them to be aggressive. Patients, particularly in healthcare, who have a, fist, a history of violence, there is some thought that if you have a history of violence or aggression, you may be violent again. But actually, the jury is out on the evidence for this. We do like to identify a history of violence. And if a patient has been violent during a stay, and that should be communicated to their community providers. But you need to be cautious with flagging them and labeling them as such. It's just a warning. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be violent again. But you see this a lot in the literature. Um, we have patients with brain injury. I work with pediatric patients at OHSU who are teenagers, who are large, who have brain injury. And you have no way of knowing, knowing when you're walking them when they're going to clock you in the face. There's just It's so hard to know what those triggers are for them. And then reaction to medical treatment. So some things to think about. And I'm sure some of our other speakers will talk about what you can look for in employee populations as well. So we have those clinical risk factors. Can you control those? No, but maybe we can manage them better. Then we have social and economic risk factors that we can't control as employers. But what we found with healthcare, our healthcare project, that if we have strong ties to the community, we work with community services like law enforcement, the sheriff's office, behavioral health providers and clinics, and have an involvement in the community, maybe we can impact what comes to our hospitals or in our workplaces. But one of our problems is this revolving door where we have nowhere to send behavioral health clients. 
So in Le Grand, in Grand Ronde Hospital in Le Grand, when we started our project many years ago, there are two policemen on duty at one time in the, in the city. It's a pretty, pretty sleepy place. It's, and anyone knows Le Grand is a great place. One of those policemen used to spend two days in the ED at a time watching a, a behavioral health patient or someone on who has a substance abuse problem. Because they were violent, they had to sit and watch them. So that took them off their duties in the town. Now that's changed now. They've hired security. But partly they were there for two days because there was nowhere to send them. There's nowhere in the rural communities in Washington and Oregon to get behavioral health support. And then you're waiting for beds in Portland. So, you know, as we've heard a lot on the news lately about our mental health system, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And then I'll just talk about a town in Oregon on the coast where the police on a Saturday night will pick up anyone that's intoxicated and dump them at the door of the ED. Here you go. Great. Okay. <laughs> so having those relationships with law enforcement and your community could at least help stem the flow of what you see in your environment. The areas where um, the employer organization can control is the environmental design and organizational risk factors. So, you know, crowded waiting rooms, this doesn't just apply to hospitals, where it's noisy and stressful and you're already dealing with sickness and illness and, and concern about a loved one. Unrestricted movement of the public, poorly lit areas, poor visibility, furniture that can be used as a weapons, inadequate security. And that's not just personnel. This is the surveillance, camera surveillance, for example. Nowhere for staff to egress in the case of an active shooter or violent situation or shelter in place, like some of those employees did in Virginia Beach last, last week. And I have been to hospitals where there is nowhere that staff can go that is locked. And we, we like to design hospitals that look beautiful these days. They have they still have carpet. They have wide corridors. They look wonderful. They're like a five-star hotel, right? And then you start thinking about, oh, where could the perpetrator hide if you're in that mindset, right? I, I am sometimes. And where can staff secure themselves in place if they can't run a quarter of a mile to the stairway? Because it seems like that. So definitely we can control environmental design. And then organizational risk factors. This is long wait times, interpersonal communication between staff, which in civility between staff is linked to a decrease in quality of service and patient care, but also how we interact with our patients. What is their perception of the service that they should receive? And if we don't meet that perception, we have a problem. It's kind of what I said earlier about you know, what we're expecting out of healthcare. And we have clients tell us, this is a hotel. You do as you're told. You're here to serve me. And these are the words that some of our patients will use. I'm paying for this or whatever. It is quite, and we're seeing this worldwide. This is not just in this country. It's quite interesting. So I'm not sure what shifted. Our psychologist colleagues can help us with that. But shifts and hours work, night shift, evening shifts, rotating shifts as well. Those working longer than 40 hours a week, there's some indication that they're more at risk for violence. Staffing and higher working turnover, I've talked about, and skill mix in healthcare, and this goes to the levels um, and education of nurses versus aides and techs that are on the job. Low perceived control over your job is a big factor. And this gets down to management style that we're going to talk about later. And actually, low perceived control over the job is linked to sexual harassment and emotional bullying. And guess what? Back injuries musculoskeletal disorders. For those of you that know me, you know I'm going to get something about patient handling in this presentation. <laughs> because there's some great new evidence that says if you have a comprehensive safe patient handling program, we don't have so much incidence of violence. Surprise, surprise. Why do you think that is? Well, if you're lifting patients manually, how close are you to them? If, so those of you that know this world, right, you're pretty close. And if you have someone with dementia like my father, if you got in his personal space, that would be a trigger for a quick whop in the face or a scratch or spit on you. 
So there is definitely a relationship. So why I'm mentioning this is that particularly in healthcare, we silo our programs or oh, we'll do patient force prevention one week. We're going to do HASCOM the next week. We'll do bloodborne pathogens. We need to look at how these are interrelated and how we can combine our resources and efforts when we're addressing them because we're very good in healthcare. I call it healthcare ADD. We do one program, we implement it, we never measure it. We're on to the next one. It, it, that's not the way to get any sustainable success. So some things to think about. Under leadership style, where we look at management style that's authoritarian, laissez-faire, there's no clear policy procedure, yeah, you report incidents, nothing happens, or policy is not applied evenly to the workforce, we see more verbal violence and bullying. Organizational volatility, this is particularly in healthcare, but some other industries as well. I had a hospital system in Oregon several years ago, the leadership we call the C-suite, we're turning over every 18 months. So if you have that turnover, how can you create a culture of safety when your leadership are gone and then you start all over again? And by the time they've learned, they're off again. This happens with our direct care staff. It happens in other industries with high turnover. And as I've said earlier, we know that this is also linked to an increased risk of violence. We're very profit driven. It's patient first, staff second. And we really have to shift that. And there's a lot of work on that front. And then we know that there's a higher risk, especially of physical violence, when there's a lack of a systems approach to safety. We work in silos. You know, it's our department versus theirs. It's PTs versus nursing versus doctors. And this happens in other industries as well. Policies are lacking in preventing violence and there's a lack of staff training. So there's good evidence to support when we don't have these and there's more prevalence of violence. One thing I found amazing, I was working with 19 hospitals in Oregon and Washington in the last five years, and I got access to all their work comp and OSHA data for five years. We then presented it in a certain way to C-suite, the leadership, and they'd never seen the data presented that way. They had no idea what violence was costing them, patient handling or anything else, and how it tied to the bottom line profitability of their organization. When I look at industry, general industry, when I came back to healthcare about 20 years ago, we still have a lot to learn on how we collect data, present it and make it meaningful and communicate. So what about barriers to reporting? So think about these environmental and organizational risks as something we need to know about if we're starting a program and how we're going to try and address them. 90% of violence is underreported, and a lot of these factors also are the same in other industries. We actually conducted a survey of four hospitals in Oregon three years ago, and we had 1,600 people respond up to an 80% response rate in one hospital. That's how hot this topic is, right? And we surveyed everyone, not just nurses. This was admissions clerk, billing, finance, everybody. The three reasons why staff don't report violence in our survey match the national data and what's reported in the literature, and that's the severity of the incident. If I'm not injured, I'm not reporting, right? So no surprise. Somebody else reported the incident, the condition of the patient. They didn't mean it. They're a little old lady with Alzheimer's. It wasn't their fault. Or I have that brain injured child. It's not their fault that I've now got a serious disabling injury. But, you know, they didn't mean it. So we don't need to really report. Fear of retaliation. So this came up in our rural areas, particularly in the hospitals. If I'm a nurse who's going to file a, um, an assault charge against a patient, I'm seriously injured. I'm in a small community. Everyone's going to know about it. And then they're going to come to my house and sort it out. And we hear this a lot. And I've not just heard this in Oregon. I hear it in, in Washington and other rural areas. Would you agree? Small communities, everybody knows everybody else, right? So I don't want to report. So when we're talking about this making it a felony, a lot of hospitals have said they would like to report on behalf of their staff so that they can take the brunt of it rather than an individual worker. Because it, it's a daunting thing to hire an attorney and go through this. 
and you'll see the other reason why in a second. Perception of what violence is by workers, that gets back to the definition for bullying, all types of violence is clearly defined, no clear policy, complicated reporting process, takes longer than 10 minutes to fill out a report, we're not going to do it. And then nothing happens when we do it. There's no feedback to the employees, poor management response, stigma my co-workers, toughen up. This is part of the job. This is normal. You should just toughen up and deal with it, right? Response by law enforcement and the DA in Oregon. I'm going to target Oregon specifically because it's pretty poor. You go and file um, a charge against a patient as a nurse or anyone else, it, it, it's dismissed. It's very difficult to do. So we have some education with our colleagues in law enforcement and the, and the uh, legal system as well. And then sadly, being unsafe on the job or being injured on the job in healthcare, not just from violence, it's just part of being a healthcare employee. Would some of you agree? I mean, it's the only industry where I hear this. I expect to, I come to work and expect to be injured on the job. Incredible. So we have a lot of work to do around culture, but some of these reasons for not reporting definitely spill into other industries. What do we do about all of this? Creating a culture of safety. You're all familiar with that term, culture of safety. It doesn't matter if it's healthcare or anywhere else. Is the precondition to effective violence prevention programs or any safety program. So let's talk a little bit about this. Has anyone heard about the joy and meaning of work and worker safety? I know you have. <laughs> Deb's over there. She introduced me to it. <laughs> so actually, this was something that was started by Deming. If you know who Deming was, who brought us total quality management, uh, continuous quality improvement to the U.S. in the 70s and 80s. He'd been working with the Japanese after World War II, brought it to this country to improve efficiency and productivity in manufacturing. And he recognized that if we don't bring joy into the work environment, we can't be a successful, profitable business. Productivity and quality are impacted. Management is responsible for creating joy for workers. It's an, it's an organizational responsibility for creating that culture of safety. So it's, this idea has been around for a long time. But in healthcare, Paul O'Neill brought this to healthcare a few years ago, and our National Patient Safety Foundation and uh, Institute for Healthcare Improvement have taken this to try and address clinician burnout, which is huge in healthcare, especially around doctors and nurses as well. And of course, if we have clinicians that are burned out, they leave and we have high turnover and it impacts patient outcomes. It's a serious issue. Does anyone know if we're number one for patient safety in the US? Now we're about 2021. 20, Europe's way ahead of us. This is my professional opinion. We have some of the best nurses in the world, best trained nurses and staff, best technology and research. So why are we not number one? And that's a complicated question. We're not going to get into it today, but how we take care of our workers is part of this. So they're really looking at this philosophy of a culture of safety that's system wide, that's driven by leadership, and we create joy and meaning in work. And workers should be able to answer yes to the following questions. And I think this applies to every work environment. Am I treated with dignity and respect by everyone every day with every encounter without regard to race, ethnicity, nationality and so on? Do I have what I need to do the job successfully, education, tools, training, financial support, so that I can contribute to this organization and it gives meaning to my life? And am I recognized and thanked for what I do? We don't do this much in healthcare, say thank you. But we know that if you've been managers that thank your staff, you know that that goes a long way to a happy workforce. And it's free and cheap to do, right? So you probably know this already, but it, it is something for us in healthcare that's still pretty new, but it applies to every environment. I'm giving you some ideas of what to look for in your work environment, your culture, so that you know, am I ready to change? Can I successfully implement a workplace violence prevention program?
We've also linked the joy and meaning in work and these organisational variants to actually a reduction in physical violence in the workplace so that there is evidence to show that that culture of safety is significant when we're talking about violence prevention. There's much more information at IHI website for you and I provided that resource. Um, You can go and look and find out more about this if you're interested. But four points for employers. Establish a goal of zero harm, physical and psychological harm for your workforce. Create a learning system. Create a real-time, transparent, timely measurement system to measure physical and psychological harm and create a multidisciplinary, reliable process for responding to harm involving all the relevant departments and disciplines. So it's getting everybody engaged. This is kind of the dimensions of joy in work. It talks about job demands, the meaning of work, social support, control and flexibility, work-life integration, organisation and culture and efficiency and resources. Something worth looking at. And I'd be very remiss if I didn't talk about total worker health here, right? Our Oregon Healthy Workforce Centre is one of six NIOSH-funded sites in the country that's looking at total worker health. Do you all know what I'm talking about? You should all say yes because Dee Dee's here. <laughs> so if you don't know anything about this, talk to Dee Dee. <laughs> right, right. But this is going beyond just the usual redesigning of work and work processes to prevent injury and illness. It's looking at stress, shift work, burnout, personal health on and off the job. It's a holistic approach to safety. So I think it very much goes hand in hand with that joy and meaning of work and what we should be looking at in our culture of safety. So just something to think about there. Now for a moment of zen. Okay, I've thrown a lot at you. I've got a little bit more to go. Does anyone know where this is? Eagle Cat Wilderness, three weeks ago, Lake Wallawa. Um, I was out there camping and I realized we don't have cell service out there. It was great. (laughs) Snowed while we were camping. (laughs) But beautiful area of Oregon. Got to raft down Hell's Canyon and it was very full and we got nearly a class five rapids. Dropped 15 feet in the raft. Awesome. I highly recommend it, right? (laughs) So it gets gets me away from the usual work stress. That's what I like to do. So let's take a little look here to finish up on programs. I want to be cognizant of time. I know um, you probably all need a lot more coffee now. Giving you a very quick overview of the components of sustainable workplace violence programs. As we know today, because we actually don't know what makes a good program long term. There's no research. There's no long term research to say these components in this combination implemented in this way are going to work to prevent violence. So we're doing the best with what we've got um, because this is still a fairly new topic to most industries, and especially for healthcare. So the Program Foundation, if you're in safety, you're very familiar with this from OSHA. We're going to be talking about management leadership. What kind of leaders do you have in your environment? And there's a lot of literature talking about transformational leadership right now. Is anyone familiar with that term? In the safety literature, we're seeing it a lot. And these are leaders who are charismatic, who inspire their workforce to do more in a positive way. They have a lot of respect. They have that transparent culture supporting continuous learning and resilience. But it is a certain leadership management style that creates that culture of safety, the opposite of what I was talking about earlier. And I'm going to just give you some questions to think about in a second. Employee participation we'll get back to. Written policies. So there's a lot of recommendation that we have zero tolerance violence policies and even Joint Commission for Healthcare recommend this. That's really hard for us because we have a duty to care. If someone turns up to the ED on Saturday night and they're as high as a kite and they need treatment or they're having a behavioral health crisis, we can't turn them away. So we might be able to say zero tolerance for our co-workers and our visitors, but certainly not for our patients. 
In other industries, it's a little easier. We also have conflict between CMS regulations and OSHA regulations, and that's going to come up if we get a federal bill passed here. But a clear written policy that doesn't sit on a shelf that's well communicated, right? So we've all done policies that sit on the shelf and no one knows where they are. It's usually the first thing OSHA want to see when they come in, plus, you, plus your OSHA logs. So program management, I throw this in because I've done a lot of programs in all areas of safety. If you don't have a program champion from senior leadership who can communicate to leadership about what you need for the program and market it for you throughout the organization, it's hard to keep these programs going. Having a program manager or facilitator with project management skills and an interdisciplinary team that involves, for example, always your labor unions, your direct care staff or your frontline workers behavioral health support workers if they're in healthcare and so on. And then a program plan about how you're going to do this, how you're going to implement and evaluate the program. It's a lot of work. All safety programs are quite a lot of work. And we've got a toolkit here in Oregon that you can take and adapt. And some of this work's been done for you. So I'll give you that resource at the end. Communications and social marketing is critical. Most programs I work with have not got a communications plan. So who are the stakeholders who are impacted by your violence prevention plan? What do they need to know? When do they need to know it? How often? Who's going to deliver the message and what are your resources to do that? And again, in our toolkit, we've given you a lot of resources that are out there and free that you can adapt, especially for healthcare, but there's some that are applicable for general industry too. And then hazard identification and assessment. Because of underreporting, OSHA logs and our healthcare assault log in, in for healthcare really is not very helpful to manage and measure the program. We have to go way beyond that. And you do for most safety programs. So we have to look at worker and client surveys. The gap analysis that we've got in our toolkit looks at where I am now, what components should I have in my program, where do I need to go to, and how am I going to get there? And then assessment, safety and security assessment of your physical work environment. And what we found in hospitals is we don't always have security experts on site. So we reached out to local law enforcement, the fire marshal, EMS, insurance, private and workers' comp insurance. And they've all come in and helped hospitals with their safety and security assessments. And I'm sure they would help other industries as well. So these are the tools you're going to use to measure your program. Because of time, I will go over these very quickly. I wanted to highlight culture today because it is so important you assess culture before you start a program. You need to know if you're ready for change. What's really feasible, because we have great ideas as committees and, oh, we can put in all these components and then it doesn't work and then we're demoralized and then things just filter away. So has senior leadership got knowledge about violence prevention? What is their role and responsibility? Is it a priority? You know, is a policy developed and communicated and implemented and evaluated? Is there ongoing resources for identifying hazards, the committee a project coordinator, training. Uh, I have a huge struggle getting budget for training in healthcare, and yet that's a critical part of our prevention program. And then are frontline caregivers involved or staff involved? And then do we know how to report? Is it a blame-free reporting environment? Is it is reporting easy and so on? And then I'm going to skip to um, our employee participation, the, the things that employees should be engaged in within a program. So there's just a list here for you, but they are also responsible for following process and procedure, right? Being aware of a situation and following protocols to identify violence and de-escalate, and also being aware of their response to violence verbal violence particularly. There's a lot of literature around emotional intelligence right now and how we respond to violence and our upbringing and our life experiences. So some things to think about. Just on the control side, if you're familiar with our state hierarchy of controls and safety and ergonomics, 
it's very hard to eliminate the risk or substitute for viol in violence prevention. If you're working with payment systems at a, a retail site, for example, maybe you don't have cash or credit cards as a way to get rid of that risk of working with cash and violence. But we really have to configure on working with engineering controls, which is your design of the work environment, barriers, security, egress, access, and so on, coupled with administrative and work practice controls. How do we identify violence, our policy procedure? How do we de-escalate and respond? So for violence prevention, we have to use both. But just remember that work practice controls require supervision. We're asking employees to do something and then we have to monitor it so they're consistently following the process and policy. And we know from ergonomics and safety in 30 years of literature that work practice controls alone are not effective over time. You have to marry it with the design of the work environment as well. And then training. And I love training because we throw training at everything, right? Can't do training unless you've got your practice controls, administrative policy procedure set. And then PPE is a last resort. And that could be our face shields um, to prevent against spitting or even bulletproof a vest. So if we look at what we can do as far as engineering and admin controls, this is just a list to give you some ideas. It depends on the work environment, but it gets to security, egress, access and so on. I do want to highlight some research around some of these interventions. They're going to vary by industry. We do know that if you can simplify reporting processes, we see much better reporting. We've seen that in our hospitals. Um, and especially if you give employees feedback about what we're going to do to prevent this from happening before, we see a lot of engagement around that. A standardized process to identify patients and visitors at risk for violence. We don't do that well in healthcare and it needs to be done. There are some validated tools that anyone can use. We've had housekeepers ask me to teach them, how do I use this tool to identify risk for violence in my coworker? And then how do I de-escalate? It's a tool we've been teaching nurses. So there's tools in the toolkit. There's some other ones out there. A standardized identification tool, then response process de-escalation. And we know from training data that that's effective. And then that after action review and how we follow up with victims of violence, our staff um, and other victims as well, um, critical incident debriefing. So education and training, this is a pet peeve of mine. There is no evidence to say what is effective violence prevention training. We just don't know enough about it. There's some indicators that if we look at de-escalation training, that's effective. But self-defense training, staff can't use it in the real world. And that doesn't prevent violence anyway. What is looking promising is um, self-paced training via computer coupled with simulations in the classroom, tabletop type exercises that are interdisciplinary for prevention of bullying and physical violence. So if you're looking at training programs, we spend millions of dollars on these in Oregon hospitals alone with canned training programs. And there are good ones out there. Let's send staff to two days of training. But you really need to know, is it transferable to the real world? Is it customized to my environment? And nurses will tell me, I'm not going to remember anything from two days of training. You know, two hours is enough for me and 50 minutes is enough for you guys. Right. Because I know coffee's calling. So proactive evaluation and design, um, designing for security, ergonomics and safety before you build or remodel proactive audits to prevent issues from happening. And then looking at that patient or client experience. And then lastly, Implementing is the old Deming plan, do, check, act. In our toolkit, we've got a little bit more detail on how you might look at this ongoing implementation evaluation process. It is important you scale this to the size of business, that you move from reactive to proactive if you can, and don't try not to get overwhelmed. Just by presenting you this today is a lot of information, right? So, and these programs can be big. So I'll finish up with tips of success for any program that I've found over the last 30 years in this field. 
have a plan, set measurable goals, make sure you've got accurate data and make sure need, leadership know about uh, what's important to the organization. Use that economic modeling for return on investment. Start small, test and demonstrate successes. Prioritize with violence prevention. You're going to have issues that have to be dealt with right now because they're severe. And then you can plan for the rest of them. Don't reinvent the wheel. We're sharing today. So learn from each other. Involve all of your stakeholders. Plan for sustainability. Go to proactive measures. Keep everybody engaged and make sure you market and communicate the program in an ongoing way. And lastly, in healthcare, let's treat worker safety as equal as patient safety. Because if we can start doing that, we're going to go a long way. So I hope that was helpful. Lots of resources there for you, including some from the construction world that are excellent on safety, culture safety. It's okay. You're going to drag me off now. <laughs> Thank you so much, Linda. If you're interested in hearing more talks from our Spring Symposia on workplace violence, visit our website at www.ohsu.edu slash and go to the Outreach and Education tab and visit our Training and Symposia page. Symposia recordings and handouts are now available. 